in season and out of season. Imagine you have the opportunity. Imagine you have the opportunity. You, you, you. I think I mentioned something like this in the BP Blast, that, that you have an opportunity to, to, to talk to somebody about faith in Christ, and yet you're thinking about this and you're saying, well, you know, these are people that, that they believe in God, yeah, but it's, it's just they believe in God generally, that God was out there, God kind of started this whole thing off, and uh, then it just, God is not involved in our daily lives. God really doesn't care about us because God is way above us. God is transcendent. Or maybe these are people, the person you're thinking of, that you would like to say something to about your faith in Christ, but they don't believe in God at all. They are materialist. They believe only in matter and science and that there's no spiritual reality, that our lives are only a matter of the atomic particles that we're made of. And when, when they, the, our life ends, that those atomic particles just dissolve into some other matter in this material universe. There's no spiritual reality beyond it. Maybe that's where they're coming from. You say, how can I say anything there? What difference can it make? Maybe you're talking to people that have their own, their own religious beliefs. Thank you. Maybe they've got a cultural heritage or a family background that they've grown up in. It's not necessarily strongly owned by them individually, but that's where they're coming from. That's how they identify. That's what's in their way, and you don't think they're interested. As I thought about that, I didn't realize as I posed that, what if, and then some of you might respond, well, gee, you're describing my Monday morning. But, but I wasn't realizing I was also describing my Saturday afternoon. I had the privilege to speak at uh, the memorial service, the celebration of life for Mark Rigo. And we knew that there were going to be a lot of friends, a lot of uh, folks whose life he impacted in his work within the Evergreen School District. We knew the place was going to be, uh, there were certainly going to be some, some friendly faces, some Brush Prairie folks I knew there. And there were also going to be a lot of folks that I didn't know. And I didn't know where they were coming from and who am I talking to. And it would run that whole realm of different backgrounds and belief from agnostic to atheist to generally have a cultural faith of one kind or another. And yet, this is a moment when things spiritually and concerning eternity and what happens after death, when those things matter. What am I going to say there? And I realized that that service at Union High School was not unlike Paul's encounter on the Oropagus on Mars Hill. That, that Paul was, was um, meeting a, a variety of people. That Paul was, first of all, we're set up in the chapter just before where we're going to start today. We're told that there are, there's a variety of people involved here, and two of those groups are called Stoic and Epicureans. Now you're wondering, okay, those are ancient Greek philosophers, probably means nothing to us today. I'm not so sure. Let me just give you a, just a brief introduction of who these people are and how they relate to people you know. The Stoic were, were, a, were, were people who, there is a philosophical school, they believed in God generally, but they believed in a God who was distant, a God who wound the universe up and then turned it loose to go its way. God was not involved in the immediate affairs of humanity. That was up to us. We were responsible to live according to the, the rules and the, and the laws and the norms of that creation which God made because that's how we were going to fit in and not run crosswise of it. 
Harmony was to be found in the order that God had made, but not because God was intimately involved with us. Those were the Stoics. God is far distant. The Epicureans were those who were focused on the imminent, immediate, material world around us. In fact, they focused on that so much that they lost sight of God at all. God was so far away that it is almost as if he didn't exist. The Epicureans, looking so close, were quite sure that God is not. There's nothing more than we can see in our immediate surroundings. So they were the atomic materialists, the humanists, that life ends when this physical... There's no fear of death because death is simply the end of existing. How can I be afraid of what I... when I'm just not anymore? I won't be afraid. I won't mind at all because I, I don't exist at all. That was their hopeful outlook on life. Now, the third group, that those two, are, those two groups are going to invite Paul to speak to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was like a supreme court in Athens interested in mainly two kinds of offenses. The most serious offenses, those capital offenses like murder, they were the supreme court to hear such cases. Also, they were charged as the guardians of piety. They were the religious court. They were charged with preserving, for the good of our society, preserving the right honoring of the gods. Those gods which gave Athens prosperity and peace and protection, right? So this was, this was the court in front of which Socrates, the philosopher and teacher, was condemned because he encouraged people to challenge the notions of the gods of Greece, to question those things that the culture had taught them. Socrates challenged that, and that was considered impiety, irreligious, violating the norms of the religion of Athens, okay? So now Paul's invited to come and explain what it is that he has to say, which probably is going to challenge the notions of the cultural religions of Athens. So Paul's invited into a situation where he's expected to, he's already been mocked, he's already been ridiculed, now what he has to say could be held against him. It's an intimidating setting. I, wanna, I want us to take a look kind of step by step at how Paul enters into that. How he, in a place where they think we know it all, that Paul makes known God. Paul uncovers actually what they do know, what they should know, what they need to know. And this takes place on the Areopagus. So before we read, I want to just take you on a visual tour. Where are we at? This is from, from the Agora, a high point in the Agora. We're looking across the marketplace or the city center, downtown, and we're looking up to the Acropolis, the high point physically, geographically, but also spiritually for the city. And then just to the right of that is the Areopagus or the Hill of Ares, or, to use the Roman name, Mars Hill. The Romans identified Mars with the Greek god Ares. So the hill of Ares, or Mars Hill, that's where we're going to be. You can see it's a flat outcropping just below the Acropolis. Okay, next picture. Here's standing up there. Now, you can see here from some of these carvings into the stone, some footings that were there, there were structures on the Areopagus. There were temples. The Greeks didn't miss an opportunity to build the temple to somebody, okay? So there were temples on the Areopagus at one time as well. 
And, uh, but you can also see just the flatness of the rock there. Next picture overlooks the city. Here are some pilgrims there on the Oropagus. This is uh, Brad, Kathy, and Julie. I don't know what happened to Bob there, but he's somewhere else. Next picture, you, 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 you can see, though, before we, before we go to the next picture, you can see there's kind of almost an amphitheater. On one slope of it, you can see how somebody could stand, and others would be standing or sitting and able to, to be gathered around at multiple levels to be able to hear what is being said. So it's kind of a natural amphitheater, although it's not terribly comfortable. Okay. Finally, going back, I, I wanted to go back later on on another night that we were there, just, just go back in the evening and just kind of soak in that environment, remembering what took place there, that in this place, in such a diverse audience, which, by the way, is not so different from ours today, Paul stood there in their midst and spoke these words that we're about to read. Now, before we go there, again, Stoics and Epicureans, you're thinking, that's a long time ago. Those are people that we don't really need to know about. But those philosophies had continued to echo down through the ages and are revived all the more. Actually, only in the last couple centuries have those philosophies, worldviews, kind of gained ground again so that they're becoming almost the majority view for us today in the West. I want to read just a couple of more contemporary 19th century expressions of each of these philosophies. First of all, it's a well-known poem. Somebody here might even have this poem framed up on their wall someplace, or it's been, it's been meaningful to you. I'm going to ruin all that, okay? It's the poem Invictus, all right? And here's just a few lines out of this. This was written by Henley in 1875. And, and, and keep in mind, God is distant, that it's up to us Chance and circumstance happen, and I'm going to guts it through. We're on our own to make it somehow. Out of the night that covers me, black as pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody, but not unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate, here's some biblical terms now, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's up to me. You hear that, the echoes? God is so distant, we are on our own. We will make our own way on our terms in the created order that God originally, sometime far ago, far away, set up. That's Stoicism, self-reliant humanism that acknowledges the spiritual reality that we function in, and yet it's up to us. Very prevalent today. Also, Epicureanism, as expressed in the Garden of Prosipine, Swinburne, 1866. These were, these were rare voices then, but you can see how it swelled up again in society. From too much love of living, from hope and fear set free. Think about that for a minute. It almost sounds like John Lennon. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living just for today. It's sad. From too much love of living, from hope and fear set free, we thank with 
very brief thanksgiving, whatever God's may be, that no life lives forever, that dead men rise up never, that even the weariest river winds somewhere safe to see. What happens when a river reaches the sea? The river is done. The river is gone. It is reabsorbed again back into that larger material reality called the ocean. And it's gone. And that is their view of what happens with human life beyond this life. So freed from the fear of God, as well as freed from hope in a future that might affect the choices that we make today. So in either way, we're captains of our own present, at least, in either one of these views. And Paul is going to directly challenge that. But how? Realizing not only that there's, a, there's an authority here that he's going to be speaking to in this council of the Oropagus, but not only that, but the destinies of souls is at stake here. It, not, it, it matters how we approach other people, not because of how they might respond against us. It matters most how we approach other people for their sakes. Oh, God, would you use me? Now, let me balance that with, it's not up to me. It's not up to you. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. But, but it matters. How could I? God, how might you use me with them in season or out of season? With that set up, let's go to Acts chapter 17. I want us to turn to Acts chapter 17. We'll start reading in verse 22. I'm going to read it in, in four or three parts this morning because I want us to, to anchor what, what I see in the passage, what Paul's doing, what we can do. I want to anchor that back into the text itself. So first I'm just going to read the first couple of verses, beginning at verse 22, but Acts 17, if you're using the church Bible, I'd like you to follow along. We'll, you'll find us on page 926. Acts chapter 17. So here we are. Paul's invited up to the Oropagus. Those are the three groups at play, the Stoics, the Epicureans, and the culture religious guardians of Athens. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You are a spiritually minded people. For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship... I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Excuse me. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, what has Paul done there? First of all, he started where they were. He starts where they're at. He uses their religiosity. He used their pensions for idols and temples. Remember, the same thing that provoked him as he, as he explored the marketplace and, and around the city. The same thing, same thing that burdened his soul, but he doesn't blast them for it. He doesn't condemn them for it. He starts there. That's a contact point. Because as St. Augustine said, there is a God-shaped hole in every human heart that we try to fill it in all kinds of ways. It's as if humanity is a blind man looking for a, a black cat in the corner of a darkened, round room. Can't find it. 
Can't grab hold of it. But groping, searching, feeling. Where could the kitty be? Start where they are. As pleasantly as possible. Commend what you can. He does not commend idolatry, but he starts there. He actually links. There's a worry about what he's got to say and how that connects to the gods of Athens. Well, he points to a temple an altar of an unknown God. What they would do is they would refurbish a temple. A temple was built there. What was that temple built for? We don't know why that temple was built. There's no identifier. There used to be a temple here. We can see that. We're not sure who it was for, but we don't want to neglect a God that, that may bring trouble upon the city, and so we're going we're gonna to refurbish the temple. We're not sure whose it is, so we're just going to identify it as we're not, we don't know whose temple this is. An unknown God that has been good to Athens. And so Paul connects there. There is a God who has been good to Athens that they don't know. And he's going to tell. This ignorant phrase that he uses in here. It's probably not helpful to call people ignorant. Okay. However, what Paul's simply saying is you didn't know. What you don't know that I'm making known to you. It's not endorsing a false belief. It's starting a conversation. Unpack their notion about God. In Athens, it was about idols and offerings, so he begins to poke there a little bit. He, he, he talks about these, all these things that you worship, you know, that you don't know. He starts there with a, with a, with a temple. But, but God doesn't live in these houses. I mean, I mean, the Parthenon, it's beautiful. It's magnificent. It's, it, was one of the, it was a wondrous thing in the world in its day. The architectural still, we marvel at how they built that. And yet... As grand a house as that was, God doesn't dwell inside a house like that any more than God dwelt inside the temple in Jerusalem. The temple's not big enough. If heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool, how, Solomon says, could God dwell within this house that I have built? Solomon knew that. It was a connection point for us. The temple was an object lesson so that we would know God because God was revealing himself there. But that's not God's house, and God doesn't need the offerings. A big deal each year was the, the offerings that were brought to Athena. A big procession through the city that wound around and went up to the Acropolis and into the temple, and these offerings, all this gold was brought in there. We're not quite sure where it went, but I'm sure it was to a good use. But Paul says, now wait a minute. Why does God made gold? Why does God need our gold? God made jewels. Why does God need our jewels? God is not standing along the sign, along, along some thoroughfare or at some highway exit with a cardboard sign saying, Please, can you help me? That is not God. God has to be far above all of that. God does not need what we have. God could not live in something we build. God has to be bigger than that. Unpack their notion about God. For instance, atheists. That Really, if that the end of life, atheism at the end of life is unsatisfying. At the time of death, when death and separation has shook us spiritually awake, atheism doesn't have an answer for that, doesn't have a hope for that. That sounds, maybe a place to start is that, that sounds pretty hopeless. It reminds me of a place in the Bible where, where when confronted with death, the New Testament, Paul, Paul writes to some, some Christians and he says, I don't want you to be unaware so that you don't grieve as those who don't have hope. We sorrow at death as well. But God has given a hope. 
that goes beyond the grave, that is eternal in the heavens, and there's a contact point there. It's, that sounds pretty hopeless. What, if your end world view is hopeless, what, how is that freeing? Maybe it's despairing. If, if there is no God, if there is no accountability, if we're just a higher order of creature, then why not within our own society can't those that are stronger just take from those that are weaker? If I like what you've got and I'm able somehow to take it from you, what's wrong with that? And we know that even when power exists and somebody can, it's still wrong. That's not just. Where do these ideas come from? It's interesting in creation. Humans like pets. Where did that come from? We like gardening. Where did that come from? Have you ever seen a bear plant flowers? Deer eat flowers, but they don't plant them. Have you ever seen a monkey with a mongoose on a leash? Animals don't have pets. Why is that we have a cat? Yeah, I've told you about our cat before. We used to have a dog. Now, that was a real pet. Now we have a cat. <laughs> and, and, and truth be told, she is good for nothing. The only thing she's good for is shedding her fur all over the place. It's amazing what shows up in the vacuum cleaner. How does so much fluff come out of one cat? She contributes nothing. And yet, we care for her. We enjoy her. We, we look after our pets, sometimes to the point of absurdity. Some of you brush your dog's teeth. God help you. <laughs> I'm a biscuit or something. But why do we do that? That comes right out of the garden, you see? There's something in us that's different with the rest of creation. Poke around a little bit at where people are and what they're believing and where does that go or what doesn't it answer? That's what Paul's doing there when he pokes around a little bit about temples. Encourage curiosity. Ask questions. Uncover viewpoints and reasons why. You know, the best way to start with somebody who's otherwise convinced is to find out what they really believe. Talk to them and understand. You know, I, I, I used to be really good at debating. I used to be, I'm still probably pretty good at arguing, so don't mess with me, okay? But I, 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 I listened to refute. I listened to what was being said, preparing and crafting my answer, and when an opening came, I could jump right in. A far better model is to first listen fully to understand. Listen fully to the extent that you can even reflect back what the... So what I'm hearing you say is, and try to give it back in a summary in different words, that if, that, if that's really it, what you've also done is you've given somebody a wonderful gift. You've given them the gift of being listened to, of being heard. This is a great thing. Some of you recognize that reflexive listening thing because if we did premarital or something together on one of, the, one of the marriage things that we've had at the church, you've heard about that before, and it's like, hey, this works in marriage too. Man, the gift that we give just by taking time to listen to somebody and letting them know, I hear you, I value you, you matter to me, that works with the person that you work with who believes something different from you as well that you first take time to know where they're coming from before you consider 
how you might respond to that. Share where you're coming from. If you've listened well, you've also earned the right to also share where you're coming from, that they'll hear differently as well. But start, start from a Romans 18 assumption, a Romans 1.18 assumption. Even as you listen, listening, wanting to understand, realizing there's probably more going on with their worldview than they're ready to admit. This whole thing about God, let me let you know a little secret. They know. They know. Romans 1 tells us from verse 18, they know. It says this, the judgment of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Don't think of ungodliness as horrendous immorality. Think of God, ungodliness as living as if God did not. The Epicureans could be very moral and completely ungodly. God's judgment is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. What do you mean, Paul? What do you mean they hold it down? They're trying to keep it under wraps. That's, that's inconvenient truth, if I can borrow a phrase. The, rea the realization, the reality of God is an inconvenient truth that is tried to be held down because it it. It involves, it requires an accountability. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Certain aspects of God's awareness is evident to them because God himself has shown them his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, that God is God, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. They know the creation. I walk around in my, in, in my own evidence of the awareness of God. Fearfully and wonderfully made. We know God made this. Somewhere at the root goes back to that God-shaped hole. And we try to fill it in all kinds of ways. But that links to the next point that I wanted to make from verse 26 to 31. Affirm creation. One of the starting points is the beginning of the book. It is Genesis. Look what Paul does in these next couple of verses. He affirms creation. He affirms through one man, Adam. He affirms that God has revealed himself. He grabs hold of this. He, in fact, he already did it here once already, that God has created everything, and yet God sustains us. God gives us those things that we need. He is pulling together the transcendence from God and the imminence in our own circumstances. And he points out that if God made us, we are accountable to him. Look at verses 26 to 31. From verse 26. And he, God, made from one man, there's Adam, <clears throat> every nation of mankind, <clears throat> to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, so that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. God is close, God is near. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance, of not knowing, God has overlooked. 
But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Let's pause there. Boy, there's a lot there. If you unpack in a few words all that Paul has included there, that God is a creationist. You know, people say, I don't believe in that whole creation stuff. Well, that's okay, but God does. God does believe in creation, okay? says so right here. God has made us out of one man. Look at what it says there. Every nation of mankind. So even the, the multiple nations, that comes from God. Where does that come from? There are not nations of bears. Again, there are different kinds of bears, but they don't gather together in nations and societies and, and have, have boundaries and also ages. When first the bears were in charge, then the lions rose up and they were in charge. The place where you see that is actual in Daniel's prophecies. In Daniel's prophecies, in Daniel chapter 2 and in Daniel chapter 7, what is he doing? He's describing what's going to happen among the Gentile nations over an extended period of time. And it runs, it runs from Babylon, after Babylon to Medo-Persia, which was the bear. And then it runs to, to Greece, Alexander the Great. And then it runs to the Roman Empire. Where, which is now ruling the world at this time. And, but all of that God had marked out in advance. It's not merely the boundaries in terms of, in terms of uh, uh, borders where one nation's going to end and another's going to start, but it's also the ages and the epochs in which different empires are going to rule. And God is sovereign in what's going on on the earth. What's Daniel's, what's Daniel's money line? The most high God, transcendent, the Most High God rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whoever he will. God is transcendent and God is imminent. God is near. God is at hand. God is in charge. God is sovereign. Okay? God is a creationist then. Why is it? Why do people deny Genesis? Why do we deny that notion of creation? It's because we don't want God to be God. We have this tension, and you heard the tension in both of those poems. It's, it's expressed in, in um, Psalm 2. Let us cast off their cords from us, speaking about God and his anointed, his Messiah, his King. In Luke chapter 19, it's expressed this way in a parable. Jesus says, we do not want this man, God's man, to rule over us. That's what's at stake. If God is our creator, that implies an accountability. That's the logical step, and it's the accountability we don't want. We want to be the captain of our own souls, don't we? I want to be at least the boss of me, and if I can get away with it, I want to be the boss of you too. That's what's going on. That's humanity. That's us in our fallen humanity, and yet we are all accountable to God, and that's what Paul dares to remind them of here. Creation affirms God is above all and God is near. Creation is what makes humanity matter. In him, we have our being. In him, we have our identity. He made us in his own image, and that's why we do the things that we do. We care for other animals because God set us in the garden to, to care for the rest of his creation. We garden, we plant, we grow stuff, even if it's flowers that are completely useless and we cannot eat. 
But we grow them because it's all part of tending that creation that God gave us to care for. Creation affirms what it is that makes humanity matter, the image of God in man. And we just saw that demonstrated in baptism, how we are identified. We have a new identity in humanity, in the man, Christ Jesus. That we are embraced by God, we are recognized, we are forgiven by God in Christ. A new identity in one new man. Don't shy away from Adam. God created for one man, everybody. That's important. The whole Adam thing is important. And did you know that DNA has proven that every person living on earth has one female that they are all descended from? There is one woman back in history, and they'll give you all kinds of dates about when, but there's one woman in history that every human is descended from. And did you know there is one male Somewhere back in history, DNA has proven that every living human is descended from. Now, you can come up with all kinds of evolutionary hypothesis about why. Well, actually, all kinds of lines just sprung up um, independently and haphazardly and by chance, and all the rest of them died out, so we're left with the one that every human being is descended by one of these and one of these. Or you could go with Genesis. My point is simply this is not as wacky as people will tell you it is. The only thing wacky about it is I am not then going to be the captain of my own soul. That's the rub. That's the problem. But that is the exact corollary out of, you know, Stephen Hawking, an avowed atheist up to his death, he toyed around with the notion of God along the way, but he admitted at one point that whether faith or atheism is a matter of something we choose to believe. The party line is religion, God, that's a matter of faith, but the evidence and science are all on the facts of evolution, for instance. It's not so. That's a matter of faith, too. Everything there stands on something you will accept and believe to be proven that cannot be validated or verified by any scientific method. Either one is a matter of faith. Take Stephen Hawking's word on it. One of the best discoveries of the postmodern world, I know postmodern gives us all kind, postmodernism gives us all kinds of concerns, but one of the things postmodernism has declared is that anything you know is to some degree a matter of faith in something or someone. The only way there can be any absolute truth is that truth which is revealed by somebody who is an absolute being just because they're important, just because they're big, just because they're powerful, doesn't make it good enough to be absolute. It may make it influential, but not absolute. Absolute truth, something that's always true, has to come from somebody who is always true. And now we're back to God again. I don't want to get too philosophical. I don't think you're going to argue anybody into heaven. What I'm saying is don't be ashamed of your biblical faith in the marketplace of ideas today. Paul wasn't then. We need not be now. And as I pointed out, Stoicism and Epicureanism, we are much closer to the first century than society has been over the last uh, several centuries. 
we are closer now to that era, and I think it's an exciting time. That was a time when the gospel turned the world upside down. So then, creation, I think, is the best answer to the cultural issues of the day. Things like marriage definition or gender confusion. If I can't go back to God made us and we are broken yet precious, where else can I go to back up my position? Is it just the whim of society at the moment? But it's, it's an understandable position. If I just don't want to accept that, I just don't want to believe that because I don't like that, that's just like somebody else's reason for, for disregarding God. But if my, my reason for staying stubbornly over, over on one side is because, well, I understand from the Bible, that God created all humanity. And God created us initially. There was a man and there was a woman that he joined together. And, and so that was how God defined marriage. And I've got to stick with that. That God created one man and one woman. There was a gender identity. Now we are broken. And that's where the confusion comes from. Don't deny the confusion out of the brokenness. Our broken fallenness and sin is not simply a matter of our bad behavior. It is a matter of our mortality that has affected us physically. It is a matter of mental illness that has affected us, uh, uh, affected us mentally. It is a matter of emotional dysfunction, temper, and rage. Um... Uh, the hurt, the callousness of heart, the narcissism that's out there, all of that are expressions of the broken fallenness of humanity. So it plays out in all kinds of ways, including gender confusion. Those are simply evidences of the fall. And we, we dare not judge anybody any more harshly than we will ourselves for our own sin. But we don't affirm any fallen sin as normal. We are broken people in a broken world in desperate need of our Savior. Creation shows us that. Creation leads to accountability. That God made us and God is willing to overlook times of unknowing. What does that suggest? God forgives. There's another need of the human heart. There's another need of people around you that they're not um, maybe openly sharing with you, but a need for forgiveness. I know I'm not who I should be. I know I've done things that are, were hurtful, were awful, that I have guilt, that I have shame, and I don't have anywhere to go with that unless there is God who does forgive. He overlooks through that one man, Jesus whom he raised from the dead because he died. You know where the, a lot of uh, atheism has stemmed from in the, in the course of the flow of the development of ideas and worldviews is a focus on the imminence of uh, uh, the imminent circumstances of man and what's near around us at hand. And if, if things are like this, if there is this evil, this hurt, this pain, then how could God exist? If God was good, well, why is he not in the midst of this stuff? Why didn't he change it? That's, an that's a focus on the imminence that ends up disregarding God at all. Either he's irrelevant or he does not exist because he's not in the middle of this stuff near at hand. That was Job's problem. Those were the kinds of questions Job was asking and God did not answer them. God simply reminded Job of the other side of it. We sang some of the lines of God's answer to Job. Who is it that gives counsel to the Lord? Who can answer back to him? 
God is so far above us. He said, his, as far as the heaven is above the earth, so far are his ways above our ways. And yet God stepped down. And that same song went on to talk about the nails in his hands. Wow, that moved me this morning. That We're concerned about why doesn't God show up? I'm amazed that God did. I'm amazed that God humbled himself and stepped into the very worst of broken humanity. And he did that out of love for you and me and your neighbor, your friend at work. That's our God. So we rely on Jesus' resurrection, his death for us, but especially his resurrection. Paul brings that resurrection here, which is absolutely contradictory from everything that his Greek friends expected and understood. He treats the resurrection, first of all, as a historical fact, and you can do that too. You don't need to prove it. You don't need to come up with all kinds of arguments. Just believe it and carry on the conversation as if it's true. In 2,000 years of settled history, you don't need to be the one to argue that point. Let other people worry about that. It is a settled historical fact. Push the choice to, was Jesus really raised or not? In fact, relying on that, but well, what do you think? When you push comes to shove, do you think Jesus was raised or not? And if not, what are the, what's the other reasonable answer to Christianity and the Bible in the world today and the effect that that has had on civilization around the world? Rely on Jesus' resurrection also as a spiritual reality. Let's go back to verse 31. Because on a, on a fixed day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he's given assurance to all. God has given assurance of who Jesus is by raising him from the dead. And it's a, it's a historical fact known around the world. I didn't say known by everybody around the world. That is revelation given to us. God has shown himself to us. You see, God is not agnostic. God wants to be known. God intends to be known. That's why you have a Bible. And that's why you have a friend, because you're going to be the one, by God's grace. That's what I mean by rely on the resurrection as a spiritual reality. Ephesians 1 said that we need to know the greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might when he raised Christ from the dead. We have resurrection power. As the song says, living on the inside. That we live and move and walk in Christ's resurrection power. Whom will I fear? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom will I be afraid? Ephesians 6.10 says, Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Colossians 1.28 and 29 says that we strive, we seek to make Jesus known according to his working, which works in us powerfully. Rely on his resurrection, not your own ability, not your own cleverness, not the answers that you've got ready at hand. You don't need any answers. Start by listening. Share what you believe. Don't, I didn't say prove it. I said share what you believe. You tell Christ and let the Spirit carry it from there. There'll be a range of responses, certainly. Look at verse 32 and following. Verse 32 now, when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, boy, there was the, there, was the, there was the tipping point. Some mocked. That was contrary to everything they expected. But others said, you know, we need to hear more about this. Some people are going to reject it out of hand. That's okay. Some people are going to say, you know, 
I'd like to hear more about this sometime. Don't wait for them to call you. You follow up. Give some time. Circle back again. Continue the conversation. And finally, we'll hear you again about this. And finally, in verse 33, Paul went out from the midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, one of the members of that highest council, charged with maintaining the expressed beliefs of the cults of Athens, is now a believer in Jesus. Wow. And a woman named Damaris. Paul always reminds us there are women involved here as well and others with them. People say, well, Paul wasn't so successful at Athens. Don't you believe it? There is as much evidence here of the believers he leaves behind in Athens as there is for the believers he leaves behind in Thessalonica and the believers he leaves behind in Philippi, the believers he leaves behind in Berea. The same testimony of those who say, well, we don't have... We don't have a letter to the church at Athens. We don't have a letter to the church at Berea. We have letters to certain churches only because of particular circumstances. I expect Paul wrote a lot more of them that we haven't retained. But don't believe the gospel was not fruitful in Athens because God's word tells us that it is. And it'll be fruitful through us as well. Some won't believe but some will, because we are not born out of family, not out of, the, out, of the, out of the will of the flesh, not out of the will of man, but we have been born of God. You know, Peter puts it this way. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It wasn't because you were clever enough. It wasn't because any of us were good enough, as Joel testified. Oh, he tried. But his parents agree. He's just not quite measuring up. And yet, God is gracious. God is merciful. Who causes us to be born again. And what's so special about you? If God would do that for you, if God would bring you by his spirit to faith in Jesus, why would he not do that through you to somebody you care about? Sure he will. Let's pray for that. Father, like flowers blooming out of season, would you use us even in a time when we least expect it? Father, would you use us tomorrow? Would you use us this week to be a messenger of hope to somebody? Somebody that we know, somebody we care about. Lord, a, a personal conversation, a note, a card, an email. Father, would you use us? In the lives of people, you place us in and around, that we might share this hope that you've given us in Christ. Father, we would pray that the things that we do, that we're involved with, would be those opportunities, would be our Mars Hill. Father, we would ask that even this offering now, Father, that you would use this, that which we give out of what you've given to us, Father, you would use it, that others, both here and even far from here, would know of Jesus who loved them and gave himself for them. Father, use us by your resurrection power. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all who agree said,